Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com because you won't find us on Google or Facebook. We respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're in for a real treat. We are going to be joined by one of the, what I view as one of the most brilliant investigative journalist out there today in this space. And that, that journalist is Whitney Webb. She's been doing this for a while and really is able to uh, scour the internet for details that uh, really only a truly committed, uh, high integrity individual who's, who's sincerely interested in finding the, 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 the bottom line and the details on this can do. So. We're really excited to have her, and so I want to welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. All right. So before we start, I think it's always wise to get a little historical background on uh, our guest. So as I mentioned, you're an investigative journalist, but I didn't say this. You're down in, in southern Chile. Uh, and uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit of the backstory, uh, why you're there, and then also um, how you started this work, because you really have uh, really achieved a level of investigative excellence that I just rarely encounter. Uh, well, uh, my uh, time here, or the way I arrived in Chile was uh, kind of accidental in a couple ways. Um, after I graduated from university, I ended up working in Cusco, Peru, um, and I met the father of my daughter, who is Chilean, and eventually uh, came down here, and that's where I've been ever since. Um, I started writing while I was down here in 2016. I originally started writing in Spanish, actually, on a Spanish language blog that no longer exists. I was mostly writing about um, environmental issues here in Chile, specifically around the um, red tide issues and how it was tied to the um, industrial salmon farming operations in the rivers and the ocean. Um, here in Chile. And then after that, um, I ended up getting hired at a page that doesn't really exist anymore called um, True Activist that um, used to be big on Facebook before the 2016 uh, extreme social media censorship began. Um, and soon after that, I was hired by Mint Press News, where I worked as a staff writer and investigative reporter um, from the beginning of 2017 until earlier this year in March, um, when I went independent. Uh, but I also collaborate pretty often with a website and a uh, formerly a YouTube channel that was recently deplatformed yeah. uh, called yeah, The Last like, American Vagabond. Yes. Yeah, literally a few days before this interview, uh, you know, I took yes. your, your site down and a bunch of others. So, mm -hmm. Well, YouTube, um, which of course is owned by Google, which is involved in Operation Warp Speed, as I'm sure we'll be um, getting into, they said that basically anyone that doesn't um, that questions uh, certain aspects of the coming COVID-19 vaccine, which hasn't even been approved and is not yet on the market, um, is, is able to be deplatformed if YouTube deems it, um, you know, uh, through their subjective lens of censorship, if they deem it information that they, you know, uh, say doesn't belong on their platform. So. Yeah, so we're going to go into Operation Warp Speed, but before we do, I just wanted to talk a little bit about BitChute, which is really has come to 
be widely appreciated as the the essentially information for people who want to know or site for information is is hosted that is essentially from people who've been deplatformed. So it's it's a decentralized platform. It's not censored at all, and uh, you can find your uh, collaborative site, The Last American Vagabond, there mm-hmm. as, as well as almost all the other sites that have been uh, deplatformed from from Google uh, or use Google's YouTube, including our site. We you know we we uh, post on both platforms, so it's uh, pretty easy to use. Uh, you, you can subscribe to a channel, and then if you you may not know how that works, but once you subscribe, that's easy and obvious and intuitive. But if you go uh, into your there's three horizontal lines in the upper right because I, I walking through this because I, I was it took me a while to figure out, but then you can go into the settings of your account, and then you can find all your subscriptions so that you can totally have access and as long as you're checking it regularly, be informed of when the, the new postings and the videos are. Because for me, watching video is one of the the most convenient ways to become educated because it's a lot for, I just enjoy it far more than audio. And that's why and I've, I've, I found your videos earlier this year and I boy, the, for the first one, I was so impressed, which is why I'm so excited to have you on today. So uh, that's a little well, detail <laughs> details on BitChute, but um, we're, we, we're going to discuss operation warp speed today, which is of course the, um, the, the, the term given by the government for their development process of this new vaccine. And uh, it's very clear from watching your videos that Operation Warp Speed, you would expect it to be governed from some federal regulatory agency like the FDA or the CDC, uh, maybe HHS, but no, it's almost all being funded, the funding is going to, and the supervision is being done by the CIA and the military. So why don't you why don't you enlighten us some more details about Operation Warp Speed? Right. Well, um, Operation Warp Speed was announced um, earlier this year, and when it was announced, it was essentially sold to the public um, as a joint operation between HHS and the Department of Defense. So the military was involved from the beginning, but oddly enough. Um, Last month, a lot of information about warp speed started to come to light. One of this was the organizational chart of its leadership, which showed that by and large, the entire operation is dominated by the military. There are very few civilian health officials, and most of those civilian health officials are involved in the therapeutic side of warp speed, which as we know now is the most uh, drastically underfunded uh, part of this initiative because it was initially given a $10 billion um, budget and it, they've already spent ten billion dollars on the vaccine um, end of the of the project itself, and only four hundred and fifty million um, have really been given uh, through warp speed to a therapeutics project, which of course we now is Regeneron, which is um, allegedly what Trump received um, when he was at Walter Reed. But, which, the, um, but Regeneron is not a vaccine, though. No, 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 no. The therapeutics. Um, there, there's originally right. Uh, Warp Speed sold itself as being we're going to develop okay. both a therapeutics and a vaccine. What I'm saying is that most, uh, the vast majority of the money and time and energy has gone to a vaccine specifically, not really therapeutics. And so, and if you look at the organizational chart, the, the civilians, the people that aren't directly deployed by the Department of Defense or military intelligence were essentially put in the therapeutics part, which was drastically underfunded and is clearly not a focus of warp speed itself. It's focused largely on the vaccine. 
what's also interesting um, from this is that we know that Operation Warp Speed um, is currently, they have about six vaccine candidates, and we know now that they plan to use them all and that they plan to allocate um, a specific vaccine to specific what they identify in their official guidance as critical populations, which they announced just a few days ago, the determination of those critical populations and the vaccine allocation strategy, um, Palantir was contracted uh, to do that on behalf of Warp Speed. Of course, uh, Palantir um, is a company that was created by Peter Thiel. It was also funded into existence by InQtel. The CIA's venture capital arm, the CIA was its only client for the first three years of its existence as a company. It's currently a contractor to all 17 U.S. intelligence agencies and also the U.S. military to a large degree, especially over the course of this year. They've received contract after contract from the military. And Palantir is also behind the HHS uh, Protect uh, data ecosystem for COVID-19 data that the Trump administration has essentially forced hospitals to report their COVID-19 data to. And if they choose not to, the uh, Medicaid and Medicare funding will be withheld to them. So they're essentially uh, forcing them to feed all of this information into a database that's essentially run by a very um, controversial organization like Palantir because Palantir also um, is very involved in things like predictive policing. Um, and, and other um, you know, uh, initiatives of the government that have been accused of abusing civil liberties or targeting minorities in the case of their contracts with ICE, of, uh, which is uh, you know, part of DHS. Um, we also know now also that Warp Speed is not what, just, what, oh, what sorry. Is, what does ICE stand for? It's an acronym. Um, I think it's uh, I, it's about immigration. Um, the okay. immigration, uh, I can't remember exactly. I don't report on them often because uh, I'm okay. usually covering uh, other things. Essentially the, but it's essentially part of DHS. The yes. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things in warp speed that are um, concerning. Um, and uh, there's a lot of different ways we can go about discussing that. One of the things I wrote about recently is that Google and Oracle, which are two other uh, large uh, tech companies that have long-standing ties to the CIA are going to be involved in what they describe as a pharmacovigilance uh, surveillance system, or what was more recently referred to by the head of Warp Speed as an incredibly precise tracking system, where, uh, whereby everyone that receives one of these vaccines from Operation Warp Speed uh, will be tracked and surveilled, not just to make sure that they get a, a second dose um, of what they have already said is going to be a multi-dose vaccine for coronavirus, but also to see what happens to people's physiology because they admit that every single one of these vaccine can uh, candidates in Operation Warp Speed uses an experimental vaccine technology um, that has never been brought to market or licensed by the government before. So these are all unlicensed and essentially uh, largely untested technologies that they're attempting to rush out at warp speed, using speed as the justification to jump through all of the uh, regulations that would normally apply um, in these circumstances. And so in order to get around that, they are essentially making uh, the Americans that receive the warp speed vaccine the guinea pigs, and they want to monitor you for 24 months after you receive the first dose to see what happens essentially and monitor people for adverse health effects. How are they going to do that? Um, that of course is a question they haven't been very open about, but there are indicators that I think are quite alarming that we can look at. One of them is that uh, first of all, Monsef Salawi, who was the 
uh, longtime uh, head of GlaxoSmithKline's vaccine division, who was put in charge of this operation, is one of the leading proponents of something that he refers to as bioelectronic medicine, which is the use of injectable or implantable technology for the purpose of um, uh, treating nerve conditions, uh, what MIT Technology Review referred to as hacking the nervous system and covering Monsef Salawi's ambitions, um, but also you know, monitoring the physiology of the human body from inside. And then we look under him, who was the vaccine coordinator for Operation Warp Speed. We have uh, Matt Hepburn, who is a former program manager for DARPA, and at DARPA, Matt Hepburn oversaw the development of something called Profusa that you can go and look up. And it is also a under the skin implantable device that allows um, a person's physiology to be um, examined long distance via a smartphone connectivity. Um, and, and Profusa, by the way, is backed by Google. And oddly enough, um, we have Mansaf Salawi being co-invested in a company called Galvani Bioelectronics that was co-founded by a Google subsidiary. And so you have Google being contracted to monitor this uh, system, this uh, pharmacovigilant surveillance system that aims to monitor the physiology in the human body for two years. And then so you have you know, those ties to the Profusa project, which oddly enough is supposed to work inside the human body for 24 months which is the exact uh, window that they've said will be used to monitor people after the first dose it, is given. Is, is there any speculation on mechanically how this is going to work? Is it like an RFID chip? Does it broadcast or is it only activated when you hover your smartphone over it? And how, because how, it's right. a small piece of electronics and it's, I, I, you've got the, the power issue. How is it going to be powered to, to, to activate and work? It seems to me it'd have to be a passive display. It couldn't be active. Right. So from what I understand, Profusa um, works when there is a device placed over where the Profusa chip is inserted into the human body. Um, and from there, it, it can send uh, signals mm -hmm. to smartphone and things like that. So, um, I mean, they've been developing it for several years. It's set to be approved by the FB, uh, FDA under an emergency use authorization in January of this year, which is also the same month that Operation Warp Speed claims that it will be able to give uh, doses of a COVID-19 vaccine to 300 million Americans. Yeah, they, they use similar technology for uh, uh, continuous blood glucose monitoring, CGMs, mm -hmm. and uh, that, you know, the sensors implanted under the skin, and then you just hover your smartphone over it and use right. an NFC chip, you can, it commu communicates in the, in the data that's given out. Right. So this is this is something similar that they seem to be um, promoting for the purpose. But, uh, you know, it's not for the purpose you just mentioned. It's, for, it's yeah, yes. basically <laughs> test. More nefarious. Uh, these, right. Well, it's to test these uh, unlicensed uh, and uh, untested vaccine technologies in people after it's approved and taken to market. And this is actually a strategy that the FDA has been trying to push through. Um, really since the H1N1 uh, crisis back in 2009, when they developed something called the Sentinel Initiative, which has a sub program called PRISM, which is all about, um, I think PRISM, if I remember the acronym correctly, it's post-licensure uh, rapid immunization safety monitoring program. Basically after something is licensed, monitor, uh, monitor it for uh, monitor an immunization or a vaccine for safety after it's already taken to market and, and approved by the FDA, whether by an emergency use authorization or by other means. So this uh, pivot 
to have safety testing for vaccines essentially done in mass after it's already approved by the government and allowed to be injected into everyday Americans. Um, you know, this is something that uh, cert a certain clique, I could guess you could say at the FDA, um, has been uh, promoting for, um, you know, over a decade, essentially. And um, the key FDA official involved in Warp Speed, Janet Woodcock, is a major proponent of that system of the Sentinel Initiative and the um, and, and the PRISM project. And it's worth pointing out that the Sentinel initiative, like Operation Warp Speed, is a public-private partnership. It is also partnered um, with Silicon Valley firms and also intelligence contractors like Booz Allen Hamilton. Uh, for people that remember the Edward Snowden uh, revelations, Edward Snowden was at the time of those of leaking the, the, those um those documents um, about NSA spying worked for Booz Allen Hamilton. So it, it's also interesting that the, the, the project that the Snowden revelations exposed that was involved, that was the NSA spying was also called PRISM and FDA's, um, you know, sub program for monitoring vaccines, uh, you know, uh, testing these um, technologies and monitoring people after they receive an, you know, essentially untested vaccine is also called PRISM. Seems kind of, uh, odd. <laughs> so is there is there any suggestion or do you have any indication as to what type of biological parameters are going to be assess, assessing through the, these chips? I mean, I'm wondering. Uh, no, there is not. Um, and that's probably due to the fact that warp speed is honestly shrouded in extreme secrecy. Um, for example, the, the parameters of the clinical trials that are ongoing right now are also not made public. Um, and for example, the vaccine contracts were, uh, they said they were not going to release publicly, but after some public pressure and some congressmen, uh, you know, wrote letters asking for those to be made public, they released them, but they're largely redacted in their entirety. So, I mean, the secrecy continues despite the fact that they allowed them to be accessible, but with, you know, extremely heavily redacted. So it really doesn't make sense if you think about it for something that should be, uh, you know, a, a ostensibly Operation Warp Speed should be, um, you know, it's funded by American taxpayers to produce a medical countermeasure or a vaccine, right, for American taxpayers in peacetime. But it's being run by the military under extreme secrecy with a lot of involvement of intelligence contractors or intelligence agencies themselves. We now know, for example, that the NSA and the Department of Homeland Security are directly involved in Operation Warp Speed, but they won't really, you know, say exactly what parts they're doing. But, um, you know, there are some indications as to what they could be involved with. And the fact that we're having Silicon Valley companies that have been known to collaborate with intelligence for the purpose of spying on innocent Americans, Google and Oracle, for example, are going to be involved in this surveillance system as they describe it um, for everyone that gets the vaccine. I mean, it's certainly alarming. And it seems to point to the fulfillment of an agenda that, that, that was attempted to be pushed through or foisted on the American public after 9-11 that was called total information awareness that was managed uh, originally by DARPA and was about using, um, you know, medical data and non-medical data, uh, non like, you know, essentially all data about your, your, your demographic data, your economic uh, history, your financial information your travel history, um, what types of magazines, this is before social media, right? But what, what type of magazines you were subscribed to, um, what type of uh, TV you watched in addition to, you know, medical records and things like that, using all of that data together to prevent terror attacks before they could happen and also to prevent bioterror attacks before they could happen and to even prevent naturally occurring disease outbreaks. And a lot of those... Um, 
same initiatives that were proposed under that original program after 9-11 um, have essentially been resurrected under different uh, ways, of course, with updated technology, um, you know, under the guise of combating COVID-19. Interesting. So um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. As we're recording this, it's a week before the election. We're probably posting this interview on the Sunday before the election. And I suspect the likely outcome of the mandatory implementation of the vaccine program will be different depending on which candidate wins. Uh, I'm wondering what your views are on that or if you don't think it really matters because it seems like the most current polls, which is actually incredibly encouraging to me, is that the majority of people, more than 50%, will refuse to take this vaccine unless, of course, it's mandatory. It's a whole other scenario. But what are your thoughts on being mandatory and the likely initial implementation, because it, you know, it's the end of October, uh, beginning of November, and it sure doesn't look like they're going to have the vaccine available this year. Um, well, that is kind of a complex question, right? Um, but yeah. from what I understand, you know, Operation Warp Speed was something that was uh, essentially created by the Trump administration, but the Biden administration has stated that they would continue the exact same program as it is right now. Um, if he is to be, uh, if he happens to win the election. So in terms of warp speed being thwarted by the, um, you know, election results or anything um, about its operations changing in a big way, I find very unlikely. Um, you know, in terms of Biden, though, I mean, he has me, he has stated his willingness to make masks, for example, uh, like a nationwide mask mandate, would he go a step further and perhaps do mandatory vaccines? I mean, it's certainly possible. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily rule it out, um, you know, if the Trump administration wins either. Um, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of things to point to during uh, Trump's term, uh, time in office that have also been not very great for American civil liberties sort of continuing, you know, what a lot of other previous presidents have done uh, following George W. Bush, Obama included, um, sort of continuing those same, uh, that same sort of um, uh, agenda in that sense. And of course, he's very, you know, uh, Trump essentially put Monsef Salawi, of all people, in charge of this operation, decided to name him vaccine SAR, so that's certainly not encouraging. In terms of the mandatory aspect, though, I think a lot of it has to do with what we may see um, in the months ahead. There are indications that there is some sort of um, event in the works, um, perhaps nine, uh, on the scale of 9-11, perhaps smaller, perhaps larger, we don't really know. But, um, you know, if that does end up happening, that obviously will change um, whether or not the vaccinations could be mandatory if there is a situation that creates enough fear among the American populace that causes people to feel like it's necessary to force everyone to take a particular vaccination. Um, we do also have, um, you know, the plan for warp speed is to have the vaccine available for 300 million Americans, but they've bought uh, more doses of vaccine than there are Americans. It seems kind of odd that they would buy, you know, at this point, like 800 million doses of vaccines um, and not plan to use any of them. Um, you know, it, well, I mean, we'll see what happens. I don't want to be too speculative, right? Because this is all. It should be a multi-dose vaccine re uh, regimen. So it's going to be at least two more likely, possibly three. Right. Maybe that's why they purchase them. Right. But even, you know, 800 million doses, even if it's two doses, that's 400 million. So, uh, per, you know, two doses each. So that's still more than more, uh, you know, I think the American population is around 320 million or so. So mm -hmm. it's, it's quite a bit. So it seems like it's, it's, there's a plan for universal vaccine coverage, but you know, um, 
2020 is really an unprecedented year in a lot of ways. And <laughs> it really seems, uh, you know, base, regardless of uh, who wins after the election, the election itself is going to be sort of a flexion point for chaos. So I really don't want to uh, speculate too much about what's going to happen in the months ahead because it, uh, you know, really anything could happen at this point. Um, and I, I certainly don't want to fall into the category of fear mongering, but I think the extreme secrecy of warp speed is very alarming. And the fact that both candidates um, essentially approve of, of that operation going forward uh, kind of indicates that either way, the COVID-19 vaccine, whether it's mandatory or not, that'll be available to the public um, should be, uh, you know, very heavily scrutinized, particularly the, you know, the, the secrecy shouldn't be necessary in peacetime uh, for something that's um, being funded by Americans for Americans. That's supposed to be, you know, a medical countermeasure to something we're told that is preventing life from going back to back to normal, right? So even if the vaccine isn't mandatory, it's very likely that certain uh, professions will be required to receive it or school children will have to receive it if they wanna go have in-person classes again or university students or what have you. So there's a lot of ways to sort of pressure people into receiving this vaccine regardless of whether or not there is a federal mandate for it. So I wanna go into some of the details of the testing that they're doing now, which is obviously inadequate. Uh, typically it takes maybe up to 10 years to, get, to bring a typical vaccine to market and that they're doing this in under a year. Uh, so there's, they've essentially abolished all the animal testing and, and they're going straight with the humans. But it seems to me in the human trials that are un, un, underway, they are targeting normal, healthy adults. So these are relatively young adults. These are not the target population for the vaccine, right. the elderly. So even within that healthy population, they are still getting side effects. Sometimes many of them very serious. And I think there's even been a few reported deaths at this point. Yes. Mm -hmm. so why don't you comment on that? Well, um, the most recent death, for example, happened with the AstraZeneca Oxford University vaccine in Brazil. And originally that test, uh, that trial was being advertised as testing the AstraZeneca vaccine against a saline placebo, but it was revealed after the death of this Brazilian uh, individual that they were actually using the meningitis vaccine um, as the, uh, you know, the, the counter test, the quote unquote placebo, which of course has a long litany of being involved in uh, being accused of anyway. Um, adverse health effects in people. So um, it definitely seems to be, have been a strategy to mask any sort of potential uh, side effects of the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, which of course previously has been paused, I think at least two times uh, because of extreme, uh, extremely adverse side effects. And then what you mentioned are, are healthy individuals, um, yeah. including a woman who lost, uh, I believe, feeling or movement in her hands and feet. Um, you know, these are really things that, that have the potential to be very drastic because you have to consider too that the sample sizes are quite small or have mm -hmm. been um, initially when a lot of these adverse side effects um, started to become known. So you take, you extrapolate that to the size of the U.S. population. I mean, that's potentially thousands of people that are suffering very adverse health effects from, um, you know, from what we know about coronavirus in terms of how many people it kills in the health, you know, in, in certain demographics, it's quite low compared to the potential for side effects from the vaccine. So something to consider there. Let's address the placebo issue, which you mentioned and reminds me, it's just extraordinary how they're able to get away with this, that they, 
because a true placebo would be a saline injection, basically water mm-hmm. with a little salt, physiological uh, tissue, but essentially there's no way you could distinguish between the two. And yet they're not using that. They're using vaccines with which are documented known side effects as, as the control. There's no way that this is a valid scientific trial. And yet it's not only for this vaccine trial that they're doing, but this is a standard strategy that they use for ages to lower the risk of reported side effects. Right. Uh, like I said earlier, it's about essentially masking. You know, you have a vaccine that's already known to be problematic, the meningitis vaccine. And if that's your placebo with this new, uh, you know, vaccine technology that the Astra, AstraZeneca vaccine uses, you're essentially uh, masking any potential, the, the, the potential for side effects that that, that, that one produces. So it definitely seems uh, designed to obfuscate. Um, what's going on here, as is the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, the extreme secrecy about Operation Warp Speed, the parameters of their clinical trials, they have not declined, they, they've declined to make those public. So we honestly don't even know things like their sample sizes um, and, and other, you know, key parameters that would normally be important. Um, you know, they want to keep that away from public scrutiny for whatever reason. Same with the vaccine contracts themselves, um, which is also odd because you had those vaccine contracts being funneled through a third party instead of being made by between the government and the vaccine companies themselves, which is normally how it works. And so one of the reasons for that was allegedly to keep them from being accessible through Freedom of Information Act requests, but it also allows those vaccines being produced under those contracts to be exempt from a lot of federal regulations, including federal safety regulations. And we also know because of the changes HHS made uh, per the PREP Act that any person that produces the a COVID-19 vaccine or admitters a COVID-19 vaccine associated with operating warp speed will not be liable um, for any sort of damages it may cause. And, um, you know, it's definitely um, uh, concerning that these vaccine companies, a lot of which just have atrocious track records, are being given billions of dollars and being allowed to operate under the utmost secrecy um, in, in developing something for the American public that could very well be mandated or, you know, for some people, uh, even if it's not an official mandate, if they want to keep their jobs or they want to stay in school, you know, they'll have to receive it anyway. So it's definitely um, an issue that more people should be talking about. But unfortunately, um, as we mentioned earlier, if you try and put this information out on YouTube because of their new COVID-19 vaccine related uh, censorship policy, you know, they're essentially trying to keep this information uh, from people who get their news by and large from, from YouTube or, or larger platforms, which is very concerning given the fact that Google owns YouTube, right, and is involved in Operation Warp Speed. It seems like a clear conflict of interest and, you know, mainstream media is asleep at the wheel, it seems, and reporting on, on that issue and, and a lot of the other things that we've already covered. So, yeah, I want to get back to Google in a moment, but I want to continue with the vaccine uh, for a for a bit. Uh, it's my understanding that this is going to be a very unusual vaccine with respect to the perishability. Uh, that it actually almost all existing vaccines can just simply be refrigerated when they're delivered, but this one has to be packaged mm-hmm. on dry ice, kept far below zero, yes. and that is a difficult um, delivery mechanism. So it is clearly going more, far more likely to fail. And I have no idea what the consequences are if the temperature of that vaccine drops below the critical threshold, but it can't be good. It's that the worst is just gonna be ineffective. This, uh, and even beyond that, it could, be ca- could potentially cause something, some even more toxic reaction. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on the, the uh, perishability of the vaccine. 
Well, yeah, they've definitely pointed out that it's going to be unusual and it's going to be um, <clears throat> uh, have to be held at sub-zero temperatures. The the organization that's going to manage all of that logistics aspect for the military is the military essentially, and they've been planning that. Uh, the means by which they will distribute and keep it under, uh, you know, uh, at sub-zero temperatures and all of this, you know, all of that, of course, is secret, like most, <laughs> most of everything else about Operation Warp Speed. So um, as far as what they'll be doing, you know, the military plans to set, um, to handle all of that, and they won't exactly say how. Um, though they have said that there's going to be um, a lot of setup of off-site or mobile vaccination clinics, that some of it will go through traditional uh, I guess points of vaccination, vaccination hospitals, uh, clinics, things like that. But they're the military itself are going to be setting up uh, their own uh, sites, and they they have spent a lot of money on distribution. I believe they also contracted a uh, McKesson, which was involved in the distribution of the H1N1 vaccine, which of course was very problematic um, itself. But, um, you know, th that's essentially all we really know as far as the distribution and logistics side um, on the for the the person at in the uh, in the Pentagon that's overseeing that particular aspect is a man named uh, Paul Ostrowski. Um, I think he's a general I'll have to go look again exactly at his rank. Um, but he's one of the people that has been uh, most adamant about the secrecy and, you know, uh, insisting that they can't release certain things. So that doesn't uh, instill me personally with a lot of confidence as to what's going on. But yeah, there are a lot more logistical hurdles than there have been in, in past uh, planned vaccination programs, which of course didn't involve the military or all of this extreme secrecy and didn't involve DHS or the NSA, um, you know, because the HHS role, you know, like I said earlier, they sold this as a joint, essentially 50-50 HHS and Department of Defense initiative. And really the number of HHS officials on this list is quite small. It's really uh, uh, the head of BARDA um, is really the only person, Gary Disbrow is really the only person on the organizational chart from HHS. But we do know that two other people at HHS that are involved are um, Paul Mango, who I believe is HHS's uh, chief of staff for policy. But the other individual is very important um, that's, that's involved in a lot of this um, for HHS, and his name is Robert Cadlick. He's the current assistant secretary for preparedness and response. Um, he has a very um, interesting career, and by interesting, I mean uh, shady. <laughs> uh, to say the least, he was very involved um, with things that uh, went on before the anthrax attacks um, of 2001, was involved in the dark winter bioterrorism exercise that eerily predicted the anthrax attacks in June 2001. He, uh, he has sent a lot of the existing uh, legislation for responses to bioterror attacks or pandemics. He essentially... Uh, created and, uh, you know, uh, BARDA as an institution, all of that, he behind the scenes was crafting that policy and creating this office that now is the ASPR, the Assistant Secretary for, for Preparedness and Response in HHS. He spent the past 20 years giving that office insane amounts of power over what would happen in a situation just like this. And what do you know, exactly at this critical point in time, that is the office that he is holding. And he has a lot of, um, he has a past of lobbying uh, for a company called Emergent Biosolutions, formerly known as Bioport, that was involved in the anthrax vaccine scandal, which largely involved the military um, back in the late 90s and the early 2000s, which was being used on American soldiers uh, for an off-label use in a U.S. port, found it to have been used in an experimental way on soldiers in a, 
you know, a mandated vaccination program um, without their consent. And this is really important because Emergent Biosolutions is going to be manufacturing the majority of warp speed vaccines. And they have a documented history, um, not just with the anthrax vaccine, but a lot of their other products of knowingly marketing untested or unsafe products to the US government, which is their main purchaser for things like uh, the strategic national stockpile, among other things. And so it was emergent biosolutions that was selected by people like Robert Cadillac, who used to be a lobbyist for them. Um, to produce the warp speed vaccine. And oddly enough, um, the person who is now in charge of quality supervision um, at that plant in, uh, in Maryland that's gonna be producing these vaccines is not, uh, has no background in chemistry or any other hard science. Uh, he has spent his entire career working for special ops for military intelligence, leading covert teams through Iraq and Afghanistan. He used to be a top analyst for uh, North Korea and Iran, also for the Pentagon. Clearly a high ranking individual in military intelligence, but oddly enough, after retiring, decides that he wants to be uh, the quality supervisor for post-fill, um, you know, after vaccines are filled in vials for emergent biosolutions. Um, and he is in that capacity to oversee the production of the warp speed COVID-19 vaccines. Just seems odd to me personally. Yes, indeed. A, a collection of interesting oddities for sure. <laughs> so I want to step back for a moment and take a, a larger overall view to kind of help people get a perspective on this. And we're not going to dive deep into the bioterrorism aspect here, but I just want to go off on a tangent because we're going to do that in a future podcast with you. But um, the it, it seems, as I mentioned earlier, that it's very unlikely that the, the majority of the population in the United States, at least, are going to submit to this vaccine. I think that I'm very, very grateful for that. I'd say or, enough of the information has gotten through, through to get people alarmed and concerned over getting it. So, but it appears, this is what I want your take on, that just like 9-11 was, this, the terrorist at 9-11, mm -hmm. it gave them an excuse to implement more tyrannical controls. And it appears that this SARS-CoV-2 viral infection, which ostensibly has killed hundreds of thousands of people, if you believe the mainstream media narrative, as opposed to the CDC's announcement in late August, that literally 94% of the people died essentially from something else, not SARS-CoV-2. Um, that this is a relatively minor threat. Yes, people are dying, but it's relatively minor, but they're using it as an excuse to implement even more tyrannical restrictions. And it would seem to me, and I don't know, this is where you, you studied far, far more deeply than I am, but it seems to me that what they're doing is laying down the infrastructure. They're building the foundation. They're build, build, hey, getting the tools together, ready to deploy the next phase, not necessarily for this infection, but down the road to have yeah. this, COVID-19 passport, it might be COVID-21 passport, COVID-22, whatever, whatever new name they get to, to literally implement this Orwellian society. I mean, it seems to me that that's the only logical conclusion from consuming this data. I'd just love to hear your, your take on it. Yeah, no, I, I I tend to agree with you in a big way, and I'll I'll give you an example of initiative of an initiative that's being put out right now by HHS that they claim is about preventing coronavirus outbreaks before they happen, and how it plays into this longstanding effort to produce produce um, quote unquote smart cities. So um, HHS a few weeks ago 
issued a solicitation, which was given to this MIT spinoff uh, company called Biobot Analytics. And essentially what they say um, it's to do is to create a nationwide wastewater surveillance system where they will be robotically sampling uh, wastewater or rather sewage um, from various cities around the country. They say that will be done to test for COVID-19 and use an AI algorithm to predictively analyze uh, whatever they sample and determine um, if a COVID-19 outbreak uh, will take place in the future up to 11 days before symptoms would even allegedly begin to show among that particular population, they say that would be done to enable quote unquote uh, rapid containment of those communities before this quote unquote uh, alleged future outbreak could happen. And, and what you can see there, in my opinion, is sort of a combination of what was previously trying to be sold to the, uh, to the public as predictive policing. But now it's sort of the predictive policing approach to healthcare. We have to prevent infection or prevent outbreaks before it happens, um, which obviously is right for abuse um, by, you know, uh, a government that is fundamentally corrupt and out of control. You know, if they wanted to lock down a particular community, all they have to say is, well, um, you know, our new surveillance system ha has identified um, through this algorithm that there will be an outbreak here in 11 days. So we have to shut everything down in this entire city, you know, just as an example of how it could potentially be misused. But um, what this with this survey wastewater surveillance system requires um, is essentially um, sensors throughout uh, and sampling units throughout um, a sewage system in a particular city. Um, which is something that is uh, uh, the underground infrastructure of what are often today called smart cities, which are, you know, cities filled with sensors that are united by the Internet of Things and 5G and Wi-Fi 6. Um, and, and all of this, and what's very alarming is that the developers that were chosen for this wastewater uh, surveillance system come from a lab at MIT that's called Sensible City Labs. And it's not sensible like it makes sense. It's sensible like able to be sensed. So filling cities with sensors, it's essentially MIT's smart cities lab that was chosen by HHS to develop this under the guise of COVID-19. And uh, what is also alarming, in my opinion, um, is that this company has uh, partnered with HHS before not to predict coronavirus or to sample for coronavirus or, or what have you in wastewater, but to detect uh, patterns of illicit drug use in certain populations, uh, which has a clear uh, dovetail with the war on drugs um, in the United States, uh, whether it has to do with opioids or marijuana use or any other sort of, um, you know, illegal substance um, allows, uh, you know, essentially surveillance on what people are ingesting in a particular community. And they don't even plan uh, per these for this company that was chosen, they also talk about um, analyzing people's diets, what they're ingesting. If people are eating foods that the government has decided are associated with illnesses, whatever those illnesses are, um, they can see if too many people are eating the wrong foods and then accordingly ban those foods uh, through a municipal or a statewide edict um, and things like that. It's really um, a recipe for the micromanaging um, of, of uh, you know, regular human habits where the government was not previously involved. Um, and it's, it's definitely very alarming that there is now this effort under the guise of COVID-19 that has gotten very little attention to surveil um, what people are ingesting and excreting from their own bodies. Uh, you know, it's definitely um, 
something that we haven't seen before. And I would argue it's because with COVID-19, what we're seeing um, is sort of a redux of what happened in the 9-11 era, whereas in 9-11, there was the, this invisible enemy of these faceless terrorists abroad. Now under coronavirus, uh, the invisible enemy is a microbe that can exist anywhere, including within your own body. Therefore, to fight and beat and win the war against the microbe, we have to know what's going on inside of your body also. And so we're seeing, you know, what I mentioned earlier with the potential for the use of something like Profusa and Operation Warp Speed, or this effort to, to, to surveil sewage to determine uh, what people are putting in their bodies, you know, is definitely um, a very slippery slope um, and essentially what I would call the beginnings of a biosurveillance state. Yes, indeed. It's just sort of the one of the ultimate strategies and approaches that technocracy is doing, essentially seeking to govern and rule the culture through technicians and scientists rather than democratically elected politicians. Mm -hmm. uh, and with the technology advancing almost exponentially, it's become easier and easier to do. So they're the leaders in the, these technology spaces would be Google for one, certainly, and MIT, as you mentioned, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on those two and probably Stanford as they're typically viewed upon as the uh, educational, well, the technologically elite might be the best way to describe it. And I'm wondering, it seems there's a, uh, a connection between all of them and uh, with respect to them uh, contributing to this implementation of technocracy. And that there's, there, I don't know if it's coordinated or there's a collaboration behind the scenes, but it would appear that there would be. Uh, because I know Google tried something similar, not to the smart sewage, but they, they tried to implement that in, in uh, Toronto. Yes. Uh, thankfully, the people in Toronto just bailed on it. They said, no, we don't want any of this, smartly. Right. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you think about the collaboration between those, those tyrannical elite? Or well, well, technologically elite, sorry. Well, uh, really quick to go back to what you just mentioned about Toronto. It's interesting that there was this pushback against it. And now the smart city infrastructure is being essentially created uh, nationwide by HHS, but it's underground. So people can't see <laughs> it and can't readily protest against it. So they're it seems like they're building it underground first, uh, you know, and then they'll just go from there uh, since they know that there is public pushback um, about it. As far as Stanford University, you know, that's where a lot of Silicon Valley, big Silicon Valley behemoths as they are today, most, and of course the largest ones were all backed by the CIA at the beginning. This includes Palantir, which came out of Stanford University. Um, this that we already talked about, their ties to the CIA. This includes Google um, also, which also got uh, NQTEL CIA funding from the very beginning. And you're, you're pretty confident of the, the connection between Google and the CIA, because I know there's a, I've read a lot on it, but it seems somewhat skeptical, but from your research, you're, you're pretty solid. Yeah, there, there's a, a pretty good investigation about uh, Google's ties to the CIA by uh, Nafez Ahmed, who uh, previously wrote for the Guardian newspaper in the UK. His uh, uh, publication, Insurge Intelligence, an investigation into that. And, you know, honestly, since uh, Google received that, that NQTEL funding, they've been willing collaborators of um, illegal spying on Americans, whether it was with the NSA um, or, you know, uh, numerous other uh, federal agencies. And, you know, what we're seeing today, for example, is Eric Schmidt, the former head of Google, who was the, um, <clears throat> the uh, brains behind that failed effort in Toronto. He is currently sitting as the chair of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, 
Uh, and the co-chair of that is a man named Bob Work, who was undersecretary of defense and was the uh, person who came up with the idea for Project Maven, where Google uh, was going to create an artificial intelligence system for drones, where drones essentially autonomously choose who lives and who dies. Um, it was very controversial at the time and was allegedly uh, axed, but it actually uh, wasn't. It was given a different name. And now you have the guy that was behind that, along with Eric Schmidt overseeing the national security state, uh, the plans for their modernization efforts involving artificial intelligence. So um, that National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence is essentially emerging of um, the top Pentagon officials, uh, Silicon Valley and in the intelligence community, which in, in, in a lot of ways is really driving not just warp speed, for example, but a lot of other um, modernization um, agendas that we're seeing unfold at this at this point in time. So, um, you know, um, that's one example of Google's persisting example, uh, um, per persisting ties to the national security state, which, of course, you have to keep in mind, too, the CIA is just one intelligence agency. You can argue it's the most powerful, but there are 17 intelligence agencies in the U.S. that all work together. Um, of course, a lot more were created after 9-11, and now they're all overseen nominally by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. But, you know, is the CIA still more in charge? I mean, that's a, that's a discussion for, for another day, but Google is definitely a willing collaborator of that. And a lot of these major Silicon Valley companies that consumers will be familiar with their names uh, double as contractors to either the Department of Defense or to the intelligence community. This includes Amazon. This includes Microsoft. It includes Google. Um, you know, they, they've essentially fused with the government in a lot of ways. And so the censorship of platforms like YouTube and Google is all, you know, has millions of dollars of contracts with, with the government. You know, you can definitely make the argument that it's state censorship to a degree. So honestly, we're at a point where the line between Silicon Valley and the national security state has become so blurred, you really can't distinguish where one began and wh where the other uh, ends. And, you know, it's, I think it's uh, quite telling that a lot of these uh, very same companies from the very beginning of their existence had some sort of funding um, from U.S. intelligence to sort of start it off. Yeah, I want to go back to Google for a moment because uh, when it first came came out, I actually started my site before Google did. And, and I remember very clearly when it first came around, as you probably do too, that, you know, as the competitor, the new kid on the block to the existing search engine, it was so far head and shoulders above. And it was just clean, simple, accurate. It was just brilliant. And almost everyone instantly fell in love with Google. And you know, it was a real big deal to get a Gmail address at that point. It was by invite only, mm -hmm. and it was like a real badge of honor to have that. I remember when I got my first first G Gmail address. But it, it, it seems ostensibly that Sergey and Larry, the two grad students from Stanford who founded it, were purely altruistically motivated. I think their intentions were good. I don't think they came in this came into this certainly possible mm -hmm. but but with the ties to the CAA I'm wondering from my viewpoint the most viciously evil nefarious character in that whole pot hodgepodge of characters is, is Schmidt I mean mm -hmm. the guy is bad from the from the, the deepest workings of his being so and they elected to choose him to be the head run the whole thing that's I think that's when he started going downhill after, right. after it came on board. I'm just wondering if, you, if that seems to make sense to you. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely agree that a lot of the, uh, what I would call the bad directions that Google has taken since it's founding, a, a lot of that uh, began when, when Schmidt became the, you know, the official uh, executive over at, at Google. Um, 
uh, but there are a lot of, you know, indicators back in Google's early history that there was uh, something going on that wasn't, you know, they weren't necessarily, you know, their don't be evil slogan and all of this <laughs> stuff wasn't necessarily what was going on behind the scenes, but I definitely don't think um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin intended originally for Google to become what it is now. I think that definitely shows, um, you know, just uh, the type of person and the type of agenda that someone like Eric Schmidt has, who Henry Kissinger now refers to as his best friend. That should give you a lot of um, in indicators as to what type of person Eric Schmidt is and why it's very alarming that he's essentially in charge of the national security state's AI modernization efforts. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that Eric Schmidt has done over the years that are deeply concerning. Uh, he and a lot of other people involved with Google, um, including Google's top futurist, as he describes himself, Ray Kurzweil, um, are very big proponents of what is often uh, called transhumanism, which is this belief that uh, it's the destiny of the human race. Uh, it will be the pinnacle of human evolution to combine with machines um, and defeat death and all of this stuff. And Eric Schmidt is um, a person that certainly uh, feels that way and was close with Ray Kurzweil. It's part of why Kurzweil was involved at Google. And um, now he's in charge of the artificial intelligence modernization efforts of the government. Um, you know, very, very disconcerting, um, especially when you look at a lot of the military's own modernization plans that they are uh, set to begin next year with having an unprecedented role um, for artificial intelligence and targeting and flagging uh, people that soldiers will then shoot with these augmented reality helmets that they have, uh, the, the Pentagon has bought that are planned to be used for next year. I mean, it's, it's just, um, you know, a lot of the Orwellian uh, surveillance structure that we're seeing rolled out, whether through warp speed or by HHS, you know, under the guise of COVID-19 response, you know, it's definitely, it definitely seems to dovetail significantly with plans that have been developed by people like um, Eric Schmidt for the modernization of the U.S. government itself, particularly the national security state. And I really don't think that there's much of a coincidence that those two things are happening um, in tandem. So I want to tie it into some uh, local, not local, but contemporary polit politics or uh, news, which is that uh, after a long while, I think over a year, the finally Department of Justice has, uh, I believe, filed the lawsuit against Google for monopolistic practices. But interestingly, it could have been done in so many different areas. It could have been done for YouTube, but no, it was done for no. search. Only so, for search. Mm -hmm. Only for search. So I'm wondering... It, you know, it seems to me that, I mean, one thing you cannot take away from Google is they are brilliant, absolutely brilliant, very clever, very skilled, and uh, very strategic. So they, uh, I believe one of their former employees or vice presidents it was the uh, former or maybe is still the existing head of the Department of Justice. So I know they have deep ties and revolving doors with the federal regulatory agencies, mm -hmm. including the Department of Justice. So I'm wondering what your take on it is, is it seems to me it's like the government trying to fight itself because they're they're almost tied at the hips right well well i think what's going on with any sort of antitrust effort at google is very similar to what happened with the rockefeller family and the breakup of standard oil where the government got you know uh, was able to look like they were actually doing something about standard oil but actually standard oil wanted to be broke up and that allowed the rockefeller family to extend uh, their influence and reach back in the beginning of the 20th century far beyond oil. Uh, for example, they got involved with uh, totally remaking uh, Western medicine um, during that period of time um, and, and really shaping the um, 
what we now know as big pharma, you know, the beginnings of that um, enabled by the breakup of Standard Oil, which allowed the Rockefeller family to, you know, put the, the tentacles of Standard Oil into um, numerous different facets of uh, American daily life. So I think it's, it's interesting that this is happening with Google now and that it's only targeting um, Google's search monopoly, which, you know, is what Google began with, much like Standard Oil began with oil. But since then, uh, Google's business has expanded far beyond the search, um, you know, and, and they're taking, they're poised to have a big role in upcoming healthcare initiatives, for example. You know, I think they're ready to uh, extend their tentacles, to use that metaphor, um, into a lot more, um, a lot more different sectors that go far beyond their search engine. So, you know, maybe people uh, would be assuaged, you know, publicly if they think, oh yeah, Google's been taken down and broken up by the government, when in reality, they don't care about their monopoly on search anymore. And they're already uh, too big to fail, essentially, um, and, and are already involved in so many different sectors of our, of our lives to a significant degree. Obviously something that would, um, because of their coming role in uh, this warp speed pharmacovigilant surveillance system, you know, I'm, okay, so they lose their search monopoly, but they are able to harvest all of this data from people, um, you know, through this, this coming uh, warp speed surveillance system. Uh, it's also worth pointing out that in early September, Google and the Pentagon partnered with developing uh, predictive diagnoses for cancer uh, using artificial intelligence, which they also announced that they um, intend to extend that to essentially every disease well beyond cancer, including COVID-19 and really anything they can think of all based on, um, you know, uh, the Pentagon's troves of medical data that have been harvested from, you know, soldiers over the years and the, the Veterans Affairs um, uh, healthcare system and the military healthcare system and all of that. Um, that joining between Google and the Pentagon in that particular initiative allowed Google's AI branch to gain access to all of that data, uh, which uh, Silicon Valley has wanted access to for a very long time. And so you now have Google essentially leading uh, that push to automate healthcare in the diagnoses of medical conditions. You know, so when you, when you look at you know those examples and other things they're involved in, um, in other you know the, this autonomous this drive to also automate the military and all of this stuff that Google's intimately involved there and healthcare and all these other parts of our lives, you know, their search engine business. Okay. So they're, you know, forced to not be a monopoly of search engines anymore. That would probably give room for something like Microsoft Bing to come in and take the other half. And I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, what kind of big difference would that make to have Bill Gates company have the other half of the search engine monopoly? So I honestly think at the end of the day, a lot of this antitrust, um, uh, posturing towards Google. Um, I don't really know if it will go anywhere. It's worth pointing out that the current head of the Department of Justice is William Barr, uh, who began his uh, legal career at the CIA, stonewalling the church committee to prevent the CIA from being uh, uh, thoroughly investigated in a lot of its wrongdoings from the 60s and before coming to light. So, you know, um, he also, when he was attorney general the first time, pardoned all the people involved in Iran-Contra. He covered up the Promise software scandal. Um, and now he's in the Trump administration and his big push most of this time has been to develop uh, predictive policing, uh, which he announced last year. It's called Deep and they've been, pub you know, uh, uh, piloting it in a few cities throughout the U.S., Detroit, Baltimore, Chicago, I believe, and a few other places uh, with plans to make it nationwide at some point. Um, you know, so I don't really think Bill Barr is necessarily um, against Google's uh, 
you know, power. And I think, you know, given his history and, and the types of uh, people that he's been interested in protecting during his legal career, um, you know, he wouldn't really pursue much action against Google, which is intimately involved with um, a lot of these intelligence agencies and things like that, unless it was something that Google wanted to happen, or yes, at least it was a PR move to make people think Google isn't as uh, powerful as it has become. So I, I don't know if you enjoy sci-fi, or but I'm sure you're familiar with a, a series of movies uh, uh, based on the Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and a, which is a dystopian film uh, from that essentially focuses on this massive corporate knowledge and power that essentially controls all the computers and takes over the world and destroys it. Mm-hmm. So and they call that I believe it's Skynet. And, you know, anytime I reflect on that, I think the, the real Skynet, the Skynet in the real world is Google. I mean, what else could it be? I mean, they literally have access to all these powerful technologies. And one that you didn't mention and many people aren't aware of is, is DeepMind. They bought them for half a billion dollars ago. And DeepMind is the, a collection of the, the most brilliant artificial intelligence scientists in the world. They've got the largest one. They, they created this program called uh, AlphaGo, which beat the World Go Championship and really is able to, uh, I mean, it's the, it, very proficient deep learning and, and data extraction techniques and, and probably is the greatest hope for uh, implementing any t- type of artificial general, general intelligence. I mean, and they own them. So, I mean, that's just one of the tools and they've got this profoundly extensive computer network and they control search and search is just probably one of the most powerful ways to manipulate the masses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do, and, they, and it does it in a way that's stealth that people do not even understand or realize they are being manipulated, which is one of the reasons why you don't want to ever use Google search. I mean, not that there's a lot of great alternatives, but it really is a reason, a major reason to stop it. Maybe not ever, because there are some good features that Google search has that really aren't available on any other search engine that I've seen. But, you know, it's just a, a rare extended use case. But uh, so I'm wondering what your thoughts about Google as Skynet might be. Well, um, you know, I definitely think Google and people like Eric Schmidt have ambitions for Google to play a major role in that. And it's definitely something we should be concerned about. But I mean, it's just one example of, um, you know, um, what I would really call sort of the national security state or intelligence communities or whatever, uh, teaming up with artificial intelligence engineers who have been trying to create something that's called the singularity self-aware AI for a long period of time. So as an example, there is a UK-based cybersecurity company that, that's partnered with a lot of these big Silicon Valley companies in the US, like um, Google and Amazon and Microsoft. They're called Dark Trace. Uh, they're essentially run uh, by the former director of MI5, which is British intelligence, and the guy that used to be the chief information officer for the CIA um, in the early 2000s, um, Alan Wade. Um, and a few other uh, high-ranking individuals. And those people uh, created that company alongside these Cambridge University mathematicians who were not trying to develop a cybersecurity product. They were trying to develop expressly self-aware artificial intelligence. And, you know, that was what caught the attention of this MI5 director and this uh, former top executive at the CIA. And what they, their product, they describe uh, straight up as unsupervised machine learning, meaning no humans are involved in what that artificial intelligence algorithm is doing. Uh, There are definitely a lot of designs 
by, um, you know, uh, the national security state to create some sort of Skynet functionality because they know that they, they can't find enough people that would normally be necessary to maintain uh, the type of Orwellian surveillance panopticon that they're attempting to construct. So obviously large swaths of that would have to be automated for such a system to be successful. And so there's this big push to create um, a all-powerful artificial intelligence algorithm in order to enable a lot of the functionality that they want to impose in smart cities and, and a lot of these other um, initiatives that they've been putting forth. And, but in order to do that, they uh, need access to data. They need, uh, you know, that's why we've heard over the past couple of years that data is the new oil or data is going to become the new oil. It's all, it feeds back into this, um, you know, this uh, race to develop the greatest AI algorithm. And, and this is um, very concerning when you look at uh, the National Security Commission on AI's um, objectives, they say that the only way to uh, maintain US global military hegemony, but also economic hegemony is to harvest more data than any of their adversary uh, states, including China, uh, from Americans in order to be able to develop a better AI algorithm before China can do the same, um, essentially needing to leapfrog China in artificial intelligence in order to maintain uh, hegemony or rather for Silicon Valley to remain a market leader in tech and also for the US military to maintain its competitive edge over China. That's what these um, very powerful and influential organizations are saying. And if you actually look at their documents, they essentially say that there needs to be a total remaking of Americans' way of life to facilitate that type of data extraction from a smaller population than the Chinese population, for example. More data needs to be harvested per American citizen in order to facilitate uh, that uh, leapfrogging of, of China and artificial intelligence. So, you know, there is a lot to be concerned about, but I think a lot of people have uh, declined to look at these uh, commissions and institutions and how they're thinking and what their thought process is uh, be just because of all the crazy stuff going on in the world right now and all of the distractions uh, that, you know, uh, consume a lot of media time and energy, like the 2020 U.S. presidential election, among other things, you know, um, or what's going on in, in other aspects of the COVID-19 crisis. A lot of people are not paying attention to these moves that are being made behind the scenes by the people that are really directing uh, the direction of where a lot of these quote unquote responses to COVID-19 are going and where they're going is nowhere good. I mean, it's essentially pointing to tyranny into a, a technocratic system that's not even governed by a human at the end of the day, it's governed by an algorithm created by man. Uh, so, you know, obviously it's a can of worms they're attempting to open and, you know, the people that are behind this, whether, you know, the military and, and intelligence agencies, when they work in complete secrecy, like they are in warp speed, they're uh, historically up to no good. I would encourage Americans to remember that, you know, these are the same people that lied us into war with Iraq, um, you know, among numerous other crimes over the course of the past several decades. Um, so we really need the question, should we just take their word for it and believe that they have our best interest at hearts when historically uh, they uh, ruthlessly pursue their own ambitions at the expense of American interest? You know, it's definitely worth considering all of these things. Yes, indeed. So it was a really great response. Thanks for that. Um, I guess in some ways their justification for doing this mirrors the justification they're, uh, they're, that's given to participate in defensive biowarfare weapons and, and bio, which leads into bioterrorism, which is a topic that we're gonna discuss in our next interview with you. 
but it's just sad and tragic. So, you know, we're nearing the end of 2020. Um, COVID-19, I, I, I'm not convinced that it's going to have this second wave massive, although the media is certainly portraying it as such with this number of cases that are up and right. the word cases with someone who is sick and symptomatic, which it absolutely is not. It's just a positive right. lab test and the, those lab tests are beyond questionable. So do you, but, but there clearly could be, especially with this investment in of research and time, effort, and energy in, in biodefensive weaponry and uh, biosafety labs for uh, three and four, uh, which is literally there's dozens of these labs around the world that that the U.S. is in investing in, in, in this whole research. I'm wondering, clearly, there's going to be a future uh, pandemic uh, that probably is more severe than what we just got through. So I'm wondering when you think that's going to happen. Do you think it's going to be this year, next year, you're going to hold off for three or four years? Do you have any guesses on it? Um, well, I think it's very likely that we'll see some sort of uh, event that will be uh, labeled a bioterror event very soon. I mean, if you look at the people that quote unquote what's predicted- the what's, the, what's the timing on it? What's your thing? Um, I'd probably say before April of next year. Okay, so um, six months. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, um, it, it's unfortunate, but I don't have a lot of reasons to be um, optimistic about the plans there. Because if you look at the people that predicted the coronavirus crisis before it happened, and then we're yeah. also Eventual. immediately positioned, right, immediately positioned to benefit um, from that crisis as it emerged. Bill Gates, for example, in April said that the coronavirus crisis is pandemic one, and it will be followed by pandemic two, which will, he said in this interview with Stephen Colbert in April, you can go and watch it. He said it would be a bioterror event. And the way to respond to this planned pandemic two would be to do the same types of preparations you would do for bioterrorism. I mean, that's straight uh, from Bill Gates. And he, if you look at what he's been saying the past few years about bioterror, um, remember mainstream media likes to promote his warnings that there would be a big pandemic like the coronavirus crisis. And he was patted on the back extensively by mainstream media pundits for that. But what they didn't talk about is that in tandem with those past warnings, Bill Gates frequently warned, warned of bioterror and talked about the need to merge international security, i.e. U.S. foreign policy with health security, as he calls it, and essentially uh, merge the war on terror with a war on bioterror. And there is a lot of, um, you know, the, the same people, for example, that did Event 201 uh, with Gates and the World Economic Forum last year, um, you know, was the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security that previously in June 2001 uh, did a simulation about a bioterror attack called Dark Winter that later, um, you know, uh, essentially predicted major aspects of the 2001 anthrax attacks and, of course, participants in Dark Winter itself. Um, had very eerie foreknowledge that something was going to happen with anthrax between the date of September 11th and when the first case of an anthrax poisoning um, was publicly announced in the beginning of October 2001. Um, I point a lot of this out in an investigative series called Engineering Contagion that follows, um, and well, it's not quite finished yet, but it's four parts and sort of follows these characters through the years um, you know, and into what some of the experiments that they're doing now. Um, so the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security has a sister organization at UPMC. It's called the UPMC Center for Biosecurity in Pennsylvania. And uh, they're currently under the guise of coronavirus vaccine research, um, attempting to fuse 
um, anthrax with the coronavirus spike protein, and they are also attempting to do the same for measles. Um, and those are essentially gain of function studies. The person that runs their Center for Vaccine Research at UPMC is a major proponent of these gain of function um, studies. And when there was a gain of function moratorium, he was its most vocal opponent and was, you know, giving all these talks to government officials about how it needed to be lifted um, and all of this stuff. And what's very odd about what was going on at UPMC is that in the beginning of the year, uh, they were set to be uh, produce really uh, what could have easily been the first coronavirus uh, COVID-19 vaccine candidate, um, but it used traditional and tested uh, vaccination methods that are already, you know, on the market and whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, it, under normal circumstances, we could assume that that could have happened, but oddly enough, um, after that had made um, some headlines about uh, that development there. UPMC received a lot of money from CEPI, which of course is backed by Gates and a lot of these, um, these actors that have been you know, scrutinized a bit over the course of the pandemic. And as soon as that uh, money was received, uh, that vaccine candidate was quietly dropped and in its place were these uh, uh, experiments to merge measles with the coronavirus spike protein and then merge uh, anthrax with that same spike protein, which definitely don't really seem uh, justified, uh, especially when you consider just how many vaccine candidates for coronavirus there are uh, that don't use and don't require that type of genetic engineering of two uh, pathogenic substances. Yes, indeed. Well, that's a small taste of what our next interview will be on because that you, you don't want to go down the rabbit hole now, but it really <laughs> is, uh, it's interesting. And we'll definitely have the interview before April, that's for sure, because uh, we need to know about this. But it really is interesting how they don't, necessarily make this a surprise. They will actually tell you before they're going to do it. If you're alert, if you're sensitive enough, and if you listen carefully, you have a really good idea what's right down the road. Right. No, absolutely. A lot of this stuff ends up getting announced uh, before it happens for whatever reason. I think it's definitely got a lot of people's attention, for example, that the term itself um, dark winter has been thrown around quite a bit in recent weeks, including most recently by uh, Joe Biden um, at the last presidential debate. But prior to that, um, the uh, former head of BARDA testified in front of Congress saying that this winter was going to be the darkest winter in US, modern U.S. history. Dark winter is a bioterror simulation that in national security uh, circles is famous. So that term may not mean much to the mainstream America, um, American public, but it certainly means something to the national security community uh, when they hear that term being thrown around on TV and things like that. And when you have Bill Gates saying after the coronavirus pandemic, there's going to be a bioterror attack, you also have the Council of Europe, a very influential and elitist think tank in, in Europe saying that uh, coronavirus will be followed by bioterror. Also, uh, high-ranking former CIA officials, uh, a lot of the people involved uh, in Dark Winter in the biodefense uh, industrial you know, complex that's essentially uh, was you know, created after the 2001 anthrax attacks, they're all saying the same thing. We really need to start listening to these people. Um, of course, they, uh, in, in advance, have a narrative they create, not unlike the Dark Winter 2001 exercise itself, which initially claimed that the anthrax attacks would uh, were committed by Iraq, working 
working with Al Qaeda, and then lo and behold, it's traced to a U.S. military. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, the source was uh, the U.S. military for that anthrax strain that was used in those attacks. So, obviously, did not come from Iraq or from Al Qaeda. And so, what you have now are attempts to, you know, see the similar narrative about who will be blamed uh, for um, in, in events upcoming in in the future. You know, you, they 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 set it up on purpose. Um, I would argue so that when the event takes place, people are more receptive to those predetermined narratives about this particular crisis um, and, and don't immediately start questioning, you know, what could have happened or they wait for an investigation to take place. Uh, they essentially want uh, these events to take place. They want to ramp up the fear and then they want to conveniently uh, tack blame to something very quickly before an actual thorough investigation could take place. I mean, that's what we saw in the aftermath of September 11th and also in the aftermath of the 2001 anthrax attacks and any sort of bioterror event uh, in, in the near future. I mean, it would be the same. They would, before any investigation, they'll tell you exactly who to blame and exactly who it was. And uh, we should be pretty skeptical of that considering all of the gain and function research. Um, you know, a lot of these doomsday uh, alarmist about bioterror admit that the gain of function research is going on in the US, it's going on in Canada, it's going on in the West. It's not, you know, it's not Iran, it's, <laughs> it's not North Korea, right? Most of that research is going on here and it's justified under the guise often of, of vaccine research. Yeah, and even if it's going on in China, it's likely funded by the US. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, so there's a whole issue. So I think if you've been watching till now, you have a really good idea why I'm so excited to have uh, the opportunity to connect with Whitney and have her share her incredible uh, results of what she's been studying so that we can become educated so that we don't have to capitulate to this fear they're seeking to uh, uh, imbue in us, which allows them to dictate and control us and, and, and lose our personal freedoms and submit to their tyranny. So the way you can avoid fear is to have knowledge and understanding and be, be aware before it even happens. So we're, go, we're going to have another interview very shortly because you've got a lot of wisdom to share mm -hmm. that will help build up our knowledge base so that we don't have to be fearful. But where in the meantime, if people want to uh, learn more of what you've compiled, how do they do that? Um, all right. So uh, unfortunately, um, one of my uh, main collaborators was taken off of YouTube relatively recently. So but you're on BitChute. Yes, but he's on BitChute. But I have my own channel. Uh, well, okay. uh, on on a platform that's called Rockfin. R O K F I N. That okay. is also dot com dot com. Yes, dot com, and it's also um, a mix. You can uh, uh, it's a sort of media agnostic. So you know, there's podcasts, there's videos, there's articles, all different things can go on there. Um, so I have a podcast yes, that's on there. Is that a, a platform or is that your actual site? It's no, it's a platform. Uh, so so I'm how, a big do you, how do they find you on Rockfin? Okay, so the name of my channel on Rockfin is called Unlimited Hangout, which is also the name of my personal website, unlimitedhangout.com. Um, so most of my work can be found there, but most of my warp speed reporting can be found at thelastamericanvagabond.com because myself and a couple of other people that work at, uh, collaborate with that site um, have been doing a series called Expose Warp Speed. Uh, that's all related to a lot of these uh, issues that have been uh, coming to light in, in recent weeks, really, really in the past month, um, about the true nature of what's going on behind the scenes at Warp Speed. So uh, between all of those, you can find me. I'm also on Twitter for now, but who knows what will happen after the election. <laughs> By the time it airs <laughs> next week, probably won't be on Twitter. Yeah, I probably won't. But in the event that I am, you can follow me there, um, underscore Whitney Webb.
Um, yeah, yeah, it's just crazy what they're doing with Twitter. They haven't banned us yet, but essentially it's almost the same. You cannot post a link from our site, it won't go. Right, if they've done used that. to warn you and say that it was a viral thread, now that just doesn't work, you know, so. Anyway, it, it doesn't matter because, you know, we, we are so grateful that there are people like you out there that are gathering the truth and get, get exposing the duplicity and the, the lies and the scams and the fear mongering that's going out so that we can understand it and spread the message. Because really, that's, that's one of the only hopes we have as a population mm -hmm. to understand this at a deep level. And, and really, you're, you're a great resource to, to, to people need to know about to, so that we could really have the latest at what's going on so that we, we aren't surprised and we can be prepared. Right. Well, uh, thank you for that. But I, def I definitely agree that information is really key to, um, ex you know, we have to expose what's going on, what's really going on in order to be able to fix it. Right. And so without mm -hmm. any sort of um, knowledge of, of a lot of these things going on behind the scenes that mainstream media is deliberately not covering, you know, is really crucial to being able to fight against these designs to, you know, take away our remaining civil liberties, our right to privacy. Um, you know, it really, um, a lot of the foundational aspects on which uh, the way of life in, in the United States is, is built upon, you know, um, including private ownership of things like your home and your cars. Eric Schmidt at the National, National Security Commission on AI has his eye on taking that away from people in the United States as well. It's really important that we start paying attention to these people um, and what they're doing. Um, a light needs to be shined on uh, what's going on, though there is a tendency for some people absorbing this information perhaps to be you know, uh, become afraid or concerned just because of the enormity of it all. But what's really important to keep in mind is that all of this is going on uh, because they want our consent. Uh, that's why they want us in a place of fear in order to get us to consent to these new systems because our consent matters and our consent is powerful. And at the end of the day, these people um, doing this behind the scenes are much more uh, scared of you than you should be scared of them, right? And other, if it wasn't for that, they wouldn't have created this whole situation to try and push through this uh, new system they want to implement, right? So it's very um, contingent on, on, you know, you you can really have an impact even if you're just one person uh, yeah, by yeah. saying, putting your foot down and saying, no, I don't consent to this and I don't um, believe what you're selling me and I'm not going to be afraid of you. I mean, that's a really powerful thing that that everyone can do. Yeah, and they understand that at a very deep level, which is why mm. they committed and invested so much time, effort, and energy to control the media. So because if, it, and even doing that, they aren't succeeding, but they're making headway, but but uh, they are fear, they're afraid th themselves. There's no question because they have to, they have to sell this to them. And it's going to be very difficult to sell them if there's people like you who are exposing the, 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 the underbelly of what's, what's going on. So thanks for everything you're doing, man. It's just great. Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity to appear on your show. I really appreciate it. Okay. We'll see you back soon. <laughs>